0: Call to mind, and therefore have hope. You might want to turn that down. That's awfully loud. Dan must have been speaking with a very, very low voice on Sunday morning. This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed; his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall not suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto Him. Unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together and to study your word this evening that we may have our our mentality challenged by the truth of your word. And as we study your word, we pray that we would have the objectivity and the clarity under the filling of the Holy Spirit to examine and evaluate our own lives and encourage to see where we need to uh, change and be transformed by your word, that we may grow and mature as believers for your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been some time now. It's been two weeks since... Um, we were here together last week. I had a major case of the flu, which is still hanging on, but somehow will survive. Open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We are now down to verse 9. James chapter 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. So that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the, is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Well, we are in verse 9, the verse 7 is where the conclusion of this epistle begins. And so James returns to a major theme of this letter, and that is the importance of patience and endurance in the facing of trials and testing in life. Now, one of the things you should notice here is that as this paragraph begins, The key word is patience. Patience is used three times in verse 7. It's used again in verse 8. And then in verse 10, it's used once again. And then we have a shift from patience, which is an attitude of waiting. It's from the Greek word makrothymia, which means long on wrath, uh, if you break it down etymologically. And it means that ability to just wait calmly in a relaxed manner for a long period of time. And that is shifts. That is the underlying attitude necessary for the second word, which is endurance, which is the Greek word hupomone, which means to remain under. Hupa meaning under, mone, mene, from the verb meno meaning to abide. And it means to stay under that pressure, stay under that external adversity and at the same time have the peace, the calm, the contentment, the tranquility, the happiness that is ours in Christ. That takes us back to that initial command in James 1-2 to count it all joy, my brethren. So the rest of the epistle really is explaining to this congregation what they have to do if they're going to have that kind of joy when they're facing trials and testing. Now, the theme here in this last section is going to be on patience and endurance. So, James begins verse 9 with a prohibition, because this apparently was a problem with the congregation. It's a very interesting construction here in the Greek. starts off, "...do not complain, brethren, against one another." Now this initial prohibition do not complain is me stenazeta in the Greek. It's a present active imperative second person plural of the verb stenazo. Now this is an interesting choice of words. Stenazo means to sigh. It means to to moan or to groan. It's used over in Romans 8 when the Apostle Paul writes that the entire uh, creation, the earth, groans under the curse of sin. It has the idea in the New Testament of uh, someone. It's used when someone or something is in a state of suffering or adversity from which they desire escape or release whenever you get hit, there's a sense of just groaning. Now, this isn't as strong a word as the English translators have chosen. They've chosen to translate it, complain, but that's, that's too strong. It's, it's, it's a soft word. And it deals with the typical response that comes out of our mouth when we get hit with some outside pressure of adversity. Remember, adversity is the outside pressure ...of negative circumstances, and stress is the inside pressure of the soul. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Adversity is what circumstances do to you, but stress is what we do to ourselves. And finally, adversity is always inevitable. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward but stress is avoidable. Now, this word stenazo is a very mild word. It is not like the word gagusmas, which has to do with complaining or murmuring, muttering under your breath about something or, or something even stronger. This is just a very soft word. Now, what's the implication of that? The implication is, that even the slightest negative insinuation about another person who we think, whether it's real or imagined, whether it's intentional or unintentional, we think that somebody else is responsible for our troubles. And what this word means is even the slightest sigh, the slightest negative, response or blame on that person the slightest sin of the tongue directed to that person is just as bad as the as the worst I mean it's it cuts out any kind of response this is uh, the, the, the the least amount of response possible of negative response possible is what James is saying here he says don't even sigh in a negative way don't it would almost imply, that just by a nonverbal response of just sighing or groaning or the way you, you, know, you might raise your eyebrows or or cast your eyes in somebody 's direction where you would be indicating something negative about that person that even that is too much don 't even do that so that taking the, the the slightest possible description of the of the sin of the tongue, uh, James then. Of course, impugns all of the more extreme sins of the tongue, such as gossip, slander, maligning, vituperation, any of the others. So, this is just a very, very soft word to indicate that even the least suggestion, the least hint of a negative comment or response about some other believer is unacceptable. Now, this is a present active imperative, and the present imperative indicates that this is to be a characteristic in the believer's life, a habit pattern where they avoid this kind of behavior. The second person plural means that it is addressed to every single believer. So with this, we need to review the doctrine of the sins of the tongue. This has been a major problem, and of course it was an issue that was addressed in chapter 3, of this particular epistle in order to uh, solve this problem. That's a typical way that we try to handle pressure, especially if it's some form of people testing where people are involved. It's real easy to start blaming them. It's easy to get into character assassination. It's easy to start uh, running them down because we see them as the source of our anguish and source of our misery, so we want to blame somebody else. It's just another way we express our self-absorption and our arrogance is to start uh, blaming somebody else for all of our problems. Even if it's true, we're not supposed to do it. So the first point is that the sin nature produces three categories of personal sins. These are mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. All all sins flow from the sin nature. Psalm thirty four thirteen states, "Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit." And then we saw in James three six, "And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life." And itself is set on fire by hell. So these are very strong words condemning the sins of the tongue and their source in the sin nature. Now the sin nature produces, it's, it's always motivated by the lust pattern, and it produces works from the area of strength in terms of human good. So the sin nature doesn't just produce sin, it also produces Good works this we saw in our study of Galatians that the Galatian believers had bought into the Judaistic legalistic heresy, and so they were not involved in overt sin, in fact they were involved in just the opposite. they were trying to impress God with how closely they obeyed the Mosaic law, and yet Paul came along in James chapter five and said, "This is nothing more than the works according to the sin nature, so just because it is not." evil or not classified as sin doesn't mean the sin nature is not in control. So the sin nature has an area of strength that produces human good and morality and it has an area of weakness that produces personal sins. It's this area of weakness that produces the sins of the tongue mental attitude sins and overt sins. Now the lust pattern whether it's approbation lust, power lust, money lust sex lust, chemical lust Uh, materialism, lust, whatever it might be, that lust is what motivates us. That's what moves us. When we're operating on the sin nature, everything we do tends to be pushed from one lust pattern or another. And it will cause us to move usually in one of two directions. These are our trends. And some people have trends towards asceticism and legalism. Asceticism means that that you're trying to impress God by what you give up or by what you do. Some people think that they're going to impress God and be spiritual by spending 30 minutes every morning reading their Bible and praying. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting up every morning and having a time where you read through your Bible and you pray. But the way that's presented by some people in some programs, it, it, it really becomes a legalistic methodology. See, that's the result of spiritual growth. But it is not a cause of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is always caused by applying the word. And folks who have a trend towards asceticism and legalism are usually impressed with people who walk around and can talk in a certain tone of voice. I was always wondered when I was in seminary and I would be around certain men, in the, uh, especially in the preaching department, how they all managed to get this same sort of tone in their voice. And how they all managed to, uh, to, to uh, have this certain air about them. And I guess they all had trends towards asceticism and legalism. Because the guys I tended to hang around with just weren't that way. But I think that's because our sin nature has trended in the opposite direction. <laughs> See, We also trend towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. Now, asceticism... If you trend towards asceticism, that can move towards moral degeneracy. That was the problem of the legalistic Pharisees. They were into moral degeneracy. Jesus said that unless their works exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would not see the kingdom of God, and that the Pharisees were like whitewashed sepulchres. On the inside, there was dead men's bones, but on the outside, it was clean, all cleaned up, and looked attractive. And that's what you find in men with much of Christianity, they've emphasized morality and emphasized an external uh, behavior pattern, but there is no real internal shift. There's no transformation of the thinking, and that's what the Scriptures mandate, is a change from the inside out. If you trend towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, then you end up in immoral degeneracy, and most people are pretty familiar with what that looks like. That's not a controversial subject. So this is the function of the sin nature, and the sin nature is the source of our sins, the source of temptation for sin, but excuse me, the source of sin is our volition. The sin nature tempts us to sin, but it is our volition that chooses to follow the influence of the sin nature. Our choice as believers is that we can walk either according to the sin nature or according to the Holy Spirit. Once we choose to sin, at that point we're under the influence of the sin nature and everything we do is a result of sin nature influence. So it can be personal sin or it can be human good, but nevertheless it still flows from the sin nature. Once we confess our sins, once God forgives us, instantly cleanses us of all our sins and unrighteousness, then we're uh, filled with the Spirit again, we're walking by the Spirit, and that's when we produce the fruit of the Spirit and uh, divine good. But the sin nature is the source of sin, and when we're under sin nature control, that is when stress is taking place in our soul. Now, what is apparently happening here is that these believers are responding, as we have seen, they are responding to all of the adversity coming their way through a host of mental attitude sins, jealousy, back in 3.14, we saw that jealousy, bitterness, selfish ambition... They were arrogant, and that produced in one quarrels and conflicts, divisiveness. Um, James talks about the fact they lust and do not have, they are envious and cannot obtain. So they are dominated by all of these various uh, mental attitude sins. Thanks. Thank you, Al. They are dominated by all of these various... Uh, mental attitude sins, which is a result of now getting involved in sins of the tongue, where they're they're blaming each other. And uh, James addressed that earlier in chapter three. And now in his conclusion, he comes back and he's going to bring it down to the lowest lowest possible expression of a sin of the tongue, and say even that is unacceptable and is self-destructive because it indicates uh, stress in the soul and will destroy them. Second point is that out of the list of the seven worst sins in Proverbs 6:16 6, through 19, three of them are sins of the tongue. Three of the sins in the seven worst sins are sins of the tongue. Proverbs 6 16 to 19, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Now, that is a typical Hebraism. When they want to emphasize something, they'll say there's four, yes, there's five. Six, yes, there's seven. It's it's a way of emphasis. It's not saying there's six and then, oh, yes, there's this additional one. It's just a stylistic device to emphasize all, all seven. They're listed in 17 haughty eyes, which is... Arrogance or pride, that's a mental attitude sin. A lying tongue, that's a sin of the tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, that's an overt sin of murder. Verse 18. A heart that devises wicked plans, so that's our second mental attitude sin. Feet that won rapidly to evil. Now this just shows an inclination of the, of the, of the sin nature of that particular person that he's always ready to get involved in sin. So this is uh, our th- uh, third mental attitude sin. Then we have a false witness who utters lies. That's a third, our second sin of the tongue. And then finally, one who spreads strife among brothers, and that is the third sin of the tongue. So in those seven, passage, seven uh, sins, three are mental attitude sins, three are sins of the tongue, and only one is an overt sin. Remember, these are six things which the Lord abominates. I like that. That was the King James word. Six things that are an abomination to the Lord. So when the Lord's going to list His sinful seven, they don't include the same sins that people always tend to come up with. And it changes from year to year. If you were to, to live in New England in 1840, the top four sins would be... Um, top four sins would be slavery, use of alcohol for any purpose whatsoever. That produced the whole temperance movement. Um, They they were very concerned with social sins. Uh, Women's suffrage, women's rights was a big issue, and so was uh, uh, labor problems. And those were the big sins. Uh, They were all social sins. And they, things change. You know, you go down south and the big sins are smoking, drinking, chewing, dancing, whatever. Anything that involves a tobacco product must be sinful unless, of course, you're in North Carolina. It all varies. And it varies from, from year to year. In fact, I read a survey that was done in 1950. And this I find this fascinating to show how things change over time. In 1950... Ninety-eight percent of Christians surveyed thought that drinking an alcoholic beverage was a sin. In 1985, somewhere thereabouts, it could have been a couple of years earlier, Christianity Today ran that first survey again and ran another survey. And by 1985, 90 percent of Christians surveyed did not think drinking an alcoholic beverage was a sin. Isn't that an interesting shift in the way we view things? So, often social issues, cultural issues determine what we think are the big sins. But Scripture says that the major sins are an attitude of the mind, mental attitude sins, and sins of the tongue, because those are roots, especially the mental attitude sins, are the core issues. So, of the seven worst sins listed in Proverbs 6:16 6, through 19, three are sins of the tongue. Verbal sins are clearly a sign that a person no longer has self-control. Point number three, sins of the tongue are motivated by mental attitude sins, such as pride, arrogance, bitterness, and jealousy. And we've already seen in James 3 that these mental attitude sins are, are dominating the congregation that James is addressing. Psalm 5.9 says, there's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part, that is, their mental attitude, is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. Here's the shift from mental attitude sins to sins of the tongue. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter, just empty verbiage. They flatter with their tongue. Point number four. Unrestrained sins of the tongue are self-destructive. And bring about triple compound divine discipline. Unrestrained sins of the tongue are self destructive, and bring about triple compound divine discipline. Matthew seven, one and two expresses this. Verse one states do not judge so that you will not be judged. This is the uh, primary mandate. Do not get involved in making judgmental decisions about some other believer and expressing that verbally. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured out to you. See what is happening here is that first of all, you have your discipline because you're judging. Don't be, do not judge. So when you commit a sin of judging, commit a sin of one of the sins of the tongue, then you get divine discipline for that. Secondly, in the way you judge you're going to be judged. So, you're going to bring your own judgment back on yourself, and then you are judged for the the sin that you're uh, gossiping about. So, that's triple compound divine discipline, and, of course, nobody wants to get involved in that. So, if you want to really get, make yourself miserable, just get involved in sins of the tongue. Point number five. God protects the believer who is the target of the sins of the tongue. God protects the believer who is the target of the sins of the tongue. This is an extreme form of adversity under the category of people testing. As we advance in the spiritual life and get into spiritual adulthood, God's going to take us systematically through various categories of testing. People testing and uh, system testing, I always think that, B- bureaucracy testing ought to be part of it it's a separate category all by itself but that's part of system testing and uh, people testing always seems to cause us to move in the direction of sins of the tongue because it's so easy to run somebody else down and try to make ourselves feel better elevate ourselves on the basis of running somebody else down so God protects us so no matter what happens we can claim the promise from job five nineteen, from six troubles he will deliver you, even in seven, evil will not touch you. So no matter what what we may be going through, what how somebody may be spreading public lie about us, somebody may be gossiping, uh, slandering us, whatever it might be, we can just relax in the provision of God and know that God is going to discipline them, that they are going to reap what they sow. And God will take care of us, so we don't need to try to get involved in defending ourselves. We don't need to try to straighten it out, because you can't do that. Once somebody starts spreading gospel about you, you just have to relax. It may make life miserable for a while, but, but that's the test, how you're going to handle that. Point number six, control of the tongue or the absence of verbal sins is a sign of a mature believer who is living in the soul fortress you're using problem solving devices you're not going to uh resort to sins of the tongue to try to make yourself feel better to try to make yourself look better to try to make somebody else look bad and and blame them for the problems in your life you're going to relax in the in the uh, provision of the lord because you understand what the stress busters are what the problem solving devices are so now you can relax and you can claim some promises under the faith rest grill. You can uh, start to utilize impersonal love for all mankind, which means that that you're going to treat them in grace because uh, you recognize that God did the maximum for each one of us at the point of salvation. Scripture says God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were in rebellion, antagonism, animosity towards God, when we were... The least desirable we could be, we were as obnoxious as we possibly could be to the character of God. God did everything necessary to provide salvation for us. So, when we understand that that is the model for unconditional love, then that gives us the ability to relax in the midst of whatever people testing there might be and not react and respond to them in kind. Point seven. The sins of the tongue can destroy an entire congregation. So it is the duty of the pastor teacher to warn the sheep against them. This is what Paul was doing with Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 14 through 17. Paul addresses Timothy and he says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them. That them refers to the congregation. So Paul is telling... Uh, instructing Timothy as to just how he is to handle these problems in the congregation. Apparently, they were getting involved in various sins of the tongue. He says, not to wrangle about words. Now, this isn't talking about theological disputations over uh, uh, important verbiage. This is talking about just uh, arguing for the sake of arguing over meaningless things. Uh, Not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself a workman approved to God who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. It's better to keep your mouth shut because if you start running it for very long, sooner or later you'll find yourself in some category of the sins of the tongue. And their talk, that is gossip, slander, the public lie, their talk will spread like gangrene. It has an uh, an infectious quality to it that is destructive. And two examples were Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, the problem in James' congregation that he's addressing here, and with many believers, is a lack of perspective when we go into trials. Now, I have said several times that when we go through maturity, first of all, we have basic problem-solving devices. Then we have the adolescent problem-solving device. And then we have our advanced problem-solving device. Now, the basic problem-solving devices start with confession, First John 1, 9, filling of the Holy Spirit, then that gets us in a position to go forward. See, the reason we want to get in fellowship is so that we can walk, go forward. The purpose is momentum. The purpose is advancing in the Christian life. So confession merely takes care of the problems of converting outside pressure into stress in the soul. Confession clears the ground. It clears the whatever failures we have, whatever sins, wipes the slate clean. Filling of the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to learn, assimilate, and recall doctrine and see how to accurately apply it to our life. And that puts us in that position to go forward. Faith, rest, drill means that we have the ability to trust God. We know some promises. We know some doctrinal principles, some theological rationales to apply to the situation. Faith, rest, drill. Then we have grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Now, these two work together in tandem. As we learn, this is the orientation envelope. And as we orient our lives to grace, we begin to focus on everything that God has. See, this is the key to true humility. We will never go anywhere in the Christian life without uh, humility. And we have uh, genuine humility, which is produced in our soul, and enforced humility which is the result of being in an authority situation where we have to submit to someone in authority. That teaches us what is necessary in order to learn and go forward. So grace orientation begins with the principle that God does all the work. Everything we have in life is based on who God is and what Christ has done for us on the cross. If we can't get a hold of that, we will never understand grace And we will always operate on some form of arrogance. And this is the problem with legalism. Whatever the legalism might be, when people think that somehow there is something in their life that has impressed God, then there is a level of arrogance functioning that will keep them from true objectivity and being able to truly advance in the spiritual life. God hates arrogance. So, grace orientation is a fundamental basic building block and basic spiritual skill. And then we have doctrinal orientation. In doctrinal orientation, that's when we begin to orient our thinking to the principles in the Word of God. The promises, the principles, and the procedures. It is not just the end. It is uh, the means are also necessary. God not only tells us what to do but how to do it methodology is just as important as the end result and this is something that is so often lost today is that so many people are out trying to do God's work and just using all kinds of human viewpoint techniques all kinds of human systems of problem solving and they think that because they now have peace and tranquility in their life because they're they uh they finally discovered Prozac and their doctor prescribed it for them, that that now they can have the real joy of the Lord. And it's amazing we had to wait 1,900 years and advances in pharmacology before we could uh, really experience the peace that Jesus gave to us. Uh, I'm amazed. I run into Christians every now and then, and many more than I ever anticipated, who are on some kind of mood-altering drug like that, simply because they've never learned how to face the adversities and problems of life on the basis of God's provision and God's procedures. So now they're going to use the world's procedures in order to claim God's promises, and that's like David trying to go to battle with Goliath wearing Saul's armor. It might work for a while, but Saul's armor gets the glory, not God. And so that's the issue. doesn't mean if you're on one of those drugs that you need to stop it immediately, but the issue is you need to get to where you're orienting to the Word of God so that eventually you can get off of those drugs. Because the reason people end up on those is because there's been a lifetime pattern of trying to solve problems their own way, and it's just built, built up stress in the soul and accumulated stress in the soul. And finally they say, doctrine doesn't work, I've got to go find something else. And the reason doctrine doesn't work is usually because they're operating on arrogance and they have no concept of the filling of the Spirit and it's a whole systemic problem. So these five are the basic fundamental problem-solving devices. And then in adolescence, this is we, when we start shifting our focus with the personal sense of eternal destiny. We'll have to develop this fully as a doctrine uh, next week. We don't have time to get into all of it tonight, but this is the key. Personal sense of eternal destiny means that you begin to realize that we're not operating on a temporal time frame, we're operating on an eternal time frame. And everything that's happening in life today, right now, has to do with eternity. Everything that we encounter, no matter how minute it might be, if it gives us the opportunity to make a decision between responding on the basis of doctrine and responding on the basis of our own abilities, our own strength, our own resources, then it has a spiritual dimension, and the issue is to prepare us for eternity in heaven. And that's why when James addresses this, he says, Don't complain, because the judge is standing right at the door. That goes back to the doctrine we studied last time, which is the imminency of the rapture. At any moment... Jesus Christ is going to return in the clouds at the rapture and at any moment because just subsequent to that will be the evaluation judgment of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. So when we start thinking that everything is going to be brought out in just a few moments at the judgment seat of Christ to determine our spiritual maturity and how much divine good is in our life, how much maturity is actually there, and that's going to be the basis of our eternal rewards and inheritance and place and position in the messianic kingdom. When we begin to grasp that so that it changes the way we operate on a day-to-day basis, then we're moving from adolescence to maturity. Just like in when your teenagers are growing up, you know, they just can't think in terms of what's going to happen when they're 30. They have trouble when they're 16 thinking about what's going to happen when they're 17. You know, they just want to make decisions based on how it makes them feel right now. But as they mature and as we all mature, we begin to think more and more in terms of what's going to happen 10, 20, 30 years from now. And I'd say most of us who are getting into middle age all of a sudden realize, yes, we too will face retirement one day, and we better have something in the bank set aside to handle things when we get there. And that's called working on a little bit of a temporal destiny. We're going to make decisions today based on where we're going to be 20 years from now or 30 years from now or or, uh, what's going to happen then. So this is just shifting it to having an eternal destiny, realizing that we're going to be with the Lord as the bride of Christ for all eternity. And And the issue is whether or not there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ or there will be glory for Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. So... James is really hitting his readers with the fact that's the whole point of being patient. Understanding the, back in verse 7, the farmer is used as an example because the farmer understands the entire growth process. He understands the beginning and he understands the end. So because he understands the process, he is able to relax, waiting for everything to play itself out over time. Same is true for the believer. Now, if you understand what God is doing in your life with testing, why God has brought adversity into your life, what He's doing to mature you and to conform you to the image of Christ, then when you go through this testing, you can relax. Instead of reacting, losing your temper, getting involved in mental attitude sins, getting involved in sins of the tongue, you can relax and go forward. That's why James said in verse 8, "...you too be patient." Strengthen your hearts, that is, the mentality of your soul, through doctrine, for the coming of the Lord is near, it's imminent. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So the issue is where we are going and letting that change what's happening today. But I want to back up before we get into developing a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We have one other doctrine in this passage that we must develop. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. And the phrase here in the Greek is the prepositional phrase kata plus the genitive plural pronoun alle alone, one another. Looks like this in the Greek. Kata is the preposition k-a-t-a, and the verb are the. Uh, pronoun is allelone, A-L-L-E-L-O-N. Now, this is a genitive plural, and it means one another. Kata is according to. It can mean against. Kata plus the genitive means against. And it has the idea of uttering something, even if it's under your breath, just a whisper, a sigh. Oh, why is that person doing that? Just the tone of the sigh, we're, we're casting aspersions on somebody else. Against one another. And this term, notice he says, don't complain, brethren against one another. He brings in that term, brethren, again. We haven't, uh, we saw it in verse 7. We didn't see it for a while, but it reminds us he's talking to believers and their reaction to other believers. This is talking about what's going on within the family of God. So we are going to take a few minutes tonight. To look at the doctrine of one another. The scripture says a lot about how believers are to behave toward one another as, other, as members of the royal family. So point number one. At the instant of salvation, every believer is united with Christ through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. So at that instant that we're saved... The picture we've seen in Scripture is the picture of baptism by John the Baptist at the River Jordan. That's the imagery background. John the Baptist said, One will come after me who will baptize you by means of the Spirit. So this is the image that just as John took a believer and plunged him under the water, which indicated it was like an initiation rite. It pictures cleansing and identification and brings him out into a new state indicated by the by the grammar and an ace clause, into a new state of repentance, a changed mind. So, at baptism by the Holy Spirit, Christ is the subject of the verb. Christ takes the believer, plunges them, using the Holy Spirit, just as John the Baptist used the water, uses the Holy Spirit in that process of regeneration, Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's a picture of Christ performing the action, taking the believer, plunging them in the Holy Spirit, the imagery of the water is there, and then out into a new state of identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. It is a complex doctrine. It relates regeneration to positional truth and the whole issue of our identification with Christ whereby we are united with him and become one in Christ. Now, that this means that every believer is positionally united with Christ and with each other. This is an important aspect of this doctrine that usually isn't emphasized. We're not only united with Christ, but there is a unity, positional unity, with every other believer. Now, I know you know some believers you don't want to be united with in any way, shape, or form. That's why we have impersonal love. Notice the passages, Romans 12, 5. So, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So, individually, every believer is positionally united to one another. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore... Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for. And there's the particle gar, which means cause. Primary meaning for gar is because. To give the reason for the command. Because we are members of one another. So we are to speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. It's another way of saying one another. We are to speak truth, lay aside falsehood, because we are members of one another. The ground For this command is our unity in Christ because of that positional reality. Second point, this is the overarching one another command. Everything else, I think, really is an application of of this command in one way or another. Believers are commanded to love one another. And I started working through this today, and I was surprised... How And I'm not going to take the time to go through all of them, but I was surprised how many times this is quoted and commanded throughout the New Testament. Believers are commanded to love one another. Now, we need to realize that this is not the normal cultural concept of love. In fact, I'm not sure we have a normal cultural concept of love. I think the cultural concept of love that we have is fairly abnormal, we don't have a clue and that's why there's so, much, so many problems in personal relationships is because people have bought into some sort of uh, sentimental, uh, emotional, superficial concept of love. And when we look at the Scriptures, love seems to always be related to obedience to the Word. How do we know if we love God? Because we obey His commandments. So there's always something very objective related to it. And it's not based on emotion or feeling, but is based upon uh, an understanding certain absolutes. Now, we all have gotten into situations where we've gone to churches, and you're told to turn, turn, turn around, and hug somebody tell them you love them, things like that. I've been in many situations like that. The problem I have with it is that it trivializes the whole concept of love. I mean, here you stand, let me turn around somebody, and you may know them, you may not know them, you may like them, you may hate them. They may have just uh, done something to you, and you have to go through this motion that is just superficial. Now, I understand what the motive is behind it, but... But the trouble is that that it is. It just trivializes what the Bible says about love. And I really wish churches wouldn't do that. But we all know that there are times when we're out with our friends or some other situation and we end up in a congregation like that, and you don't need to stick your nose up in the the air and act like some sort of antisocial prune when that happens. You know, just relax. Exercise a little grace orientation towards people who are doing that. Relax and enjoy it. You never know who might come up and hug you. (laughs) Maybe you need it. I remember times I've seen, I've been places and I've seen some people from doctrinal churches just act like absolute asses in a situation like that. And uh, you shouldn't make, make something like that an issue. Believers are commanded to love one another, and that is expressed in certain actions. It's not expressed through certain emotions. Let's look at some passages. We've studied these on Sunday morning. John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So the model is Christ's work on the cross, that Jesus Christ came to the earth, and there He sacrificed uh, and went to the cross, gave up His position in heaven, took on human flesh, went through all of the suffering that was involved on the cross on our behalf, not because we were wonderful, but because of His wonderful character. So this is the model. John thirteen thirty five. "...By this all men will know that you are My disciples if you have loved one for another." So this more than anything else is our testimony before the world is how we treat one another as believers. John fifteen twelve, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. John fifteen seventeen, this I command you that you love one another. Then Romans thirteen eight, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the sin nature, but through love serve one another. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4.2 With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, tolerance there indicates the fact that you're going to run into some people that you may not like. Their personalities may be different from yours. They may be an immature believer or a mature believer. They may have opinions that are different from yours. They may dress in a way that you don't approve of, but you're going to tolerate. That means you're not going to judge them. That means you're not going to ridicule them or run them down. That means that you are going to allow them to be who they are. Tolerance does not mean you're necessarily going to approve of them. See, we're living in an age now when tolerance is being redefined as acceptance and approval. And that's typical of our postmodern culture. And we've studied that last August. We've gone through all the characteristics of postmodernism and the new tolerance. And this is very dangerous because if you're not tolerant, which is defined as accepting everybody, then you are hateful. And if you think that you're going to get up and say somebody's going to go to hell because they haven't trusted Christ as their Savior, then you're really judging somebody else who holds a different view, and that's a hate crime. And there are certainly groups, in fact, there is a has been a uh, United Nations, um, what do they call it, United, a UN policy stating just that, that anybody who was guilty of causing someone to change their religious beliefs, was guilty of a hate crime. So, you can just see the handwriting on the wall that that's exactly where our culture is headed. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, that is the mentality of the soul. First Thessalonians 3.12 And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. First Thessalonians 4.9 Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And then First John is probably the one epistle that is one of the greatest expressions of this. 1 John 3.11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.23, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 1 John 4.12, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That is, we're in fellowship with God, and His love is matured in us. In 2 John 5, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, this is what we call impersonal love, which means you don't have to know the person You don't have to have a personal relationship with the person in order to love them. You will always do what is best and what is in their best interest because you have objectivity in your soul from doctrine. That's why doctrinal orientation must precede um, impersonal love for all mankind. This is also why grace orientation must precede impersonal love for all mankind. As part of impersonal love, we must develop an attitude of helping or serving one another helping or serving one another this is one application of impersonal love Galatians 5.13 for you were called to freedom brethren only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the sin nature but through love serve one another 1 Corinthians 12.25 so that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another so, the caring for one another is one aspect of serving one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens is part of impersonal love and serving one another. Point four, this demands a basic grace orientation. If you don't understand grace, you can't love. Because grace means that God did everything for us, not seeking anything in return. There was no selfish motive. He did it all on the basis of who He is and His own character. And if you don't understand grace orientation to love somebody expecting nothing in return, then you will never understand love. When you want something in return, that's called works. And you're no longer freely loving someone. So, to be able to love anyone or have any capacity for love, you have to have a basic grace orientation which brings in humility both genuine humility and enforced humility, and a relaxed mental attitude. Remember, there are four aspects to grace orientation. Four aspects to grace orientation. First of all, you have to realize that everything we do, everything we have, is due to who God is and what Christ has done for us. There's not one thing that we have that is the result of our own talent, our own effort, or because we're so great and wonderful, God just recognized that and bestowed it upon us. We have to start with the principle that everything we have is due to who God is and what Christ did for us on the cross. Secondly, the second aspect of grace orientation is humility. Humility including both genuine and enforced humility, which is authority orientation. If you do not understand authority and the authority of God, you'll never go anywhere in the spiritual life. The third dimension to grace orientation is a relaxed mental attitude. So that when people say things or do things, no matter how obnoxious it may be, no matter how insulting it is, no matter how it hurts your feelings, you now have the ability to simply relax and let God deal with it. So the third aspect of grace orientation is a relaxed mental attitude. And a fourth is a mastery of the details of life. A mastery of the details of life, which means... Whether we have them or not, they are not the source of our happiness, stability, or tranquility. It is our relationship with the Lord. That's why Paul said, I have learned to abound, and I have learned to do without. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When he says, I can do all things, what he's talking about is, I can live in any circumstance, whether I have it or whether I don't have it, because I have mastered the details of life. Romans 12.10 states, "...be devoted to one another in brotherly love." Give preference to one another in honor. So we have grace, orientation, and humility, and we can prefer one another and honor one another instead of seeking self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. Romans 12.16, Be of the same mind towards one another. Have the same objective mentality based on doctrine toward one another. Do not be haughty, that is arrogant, in your thinking. Arrogance produces subjectivity and distortion of reality, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't be promoting yourself. This is a definition of true humility, which is the only way to objectivity in life. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. And this precedes the, path, the passage where, which is the kenosis passage, where we were to have this mind in you, which was in Christ, and he did not think equality with God something to be held onto. So Jesus' pattern is that he had a right to deity and to heaven and all the prerogatives of heaven, yet he willingly gave that up and limited that even to the point of obedience to the cross so that he could serve us. So that's the pattern for our relationship to one another, to loving one another, and to regarding one another as more important than ourselves. Christ regarded us as more important than himself by going to the cross. First Peter 5.5 5, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, he makes war against the arrogant, and he gives grace to The humble. So we see here that grace orientation involves humility and it's necessary in order to serve one another and to love one another. And that brings in another of the stress busters, which is impersonal or unconditional love for one another. First, we build it with that basic building block of grace orientation. Then, as you advance through personal sense of eternal destiny, then you can develop As you're motivated by personal love for God, you develop impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. This means that now you can exercise true forgiveness towards those who offend you. We are to exercise a true forgiveness, which means we forgive and we don't hold that against them. That doesn't mean that you necessarily continue to put yourself in a position where you can be taken advantage of, if that's the situation, if you're, for example, if you're a wife... And you're in an abusive relationship. That doesn't mean you just stay home and you just keep being abused. But there is forgiveness, which means there's no longer any mental attitude sins. There's no vindictiveness. There's no revenge motivation. You're not uh, spending all of your time thinking about how horrible that jerk is and how you're going to get back at him and you wish his life is miserable. You have a relaxed mental attitude. Let it go past you. Look forward and move on in your life. Uh, This is the basis for impersonal love. John 13:14. Jesus said, "If I, the Lord and Teacher, washed your feet, now we studied that in John 13, and the washing of the feet was to symbolize forgiveness. It was a, a, a visual representation of forgiveness. So you all also ought to wash one another's feet, and that purpose is in in uh, forgiveness. Ephesians 4:32. Be kind to one another." tenderhearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you once again the pattern goes back to the cross Colossians 3:13 bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint and that's a stronger word than the word we have in James so if in James we're not even to sigh against one another then that of course means we can't complain against one another just as the Lord forgave you so also Should you forgive one another? Point number six. We are to have enough doctrine in our soul to be able to help those in our periphery to evaluate situations and apply doctrine. We are to have enough doctrine in our soul to help those around us to evaluate situations and apply doctrine. And point 7, we are to say and do things which promote an environment of spiritual growth in others. The same verses apply to both point 6 and point 7. Romans fourteen nineteen. so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up. This is edification, this is the strengthening of the soul. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the edification of one another, the spiritual maturing of one another. Romans 15.5 Now may the God who gives perseverance, that's our word uh perseverance or endurance and encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And then Romans 15.14 And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge, that is, knowledge of doctrine in the soul, and able also to admonish, That is, to correct or straighten up one another. Now, a word here, that doesn't mean you get involved in everybody else's business, but one another doesn't mean every believer. One another means those believers you associate with, and it always demands a certain amount of sensitivity to some believer who decides that he's going to go into reversionism, and so as soon as you come up and start trying to encourage them, and they've already decided they don't want to have anything to do with doctrine, you have to have the sensitivity to pull back and not be let the Lord deal with them. Um, we all uh, know situations like that have had that happen at one time or another in our life. So any time we get involved with other people, there always uh, is a need for that level of, of uh, sensitivity to where to what other people are doing. First Thessalonians 4:18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Point number eight, we are to pray for one another. Now, we'll get into this passage next week, or in a couple of weeks. James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. That's not public confession of sins. One another, once again, is just those believers in your periphery. And here it involves believers that you have offended and simply going to them and saying, Hey, look, I screwed up. Uh, I'm sorry I did that. Whatever it may be, just a genuine apology. This is not public confession of sin. The purpose here is not fellowship. It is simply uh, not fellowship with God. It is simply to deal with whatever situations may occur between you and somebody else. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And this is not, as we will see, this is not physical healing at all, but is spiritual strengthening. Point number nine, as part of our expression of impersonal love, we are to be hospitable. That is, we are to open our hearts at home to other believers. Not all the time. It doesn't mean you have a revolving door on your front door or that you should feel man- like it's a, a mandatory thing every time somebody comes through town that you need to be the one to put them up. But there should be hospitality on the part of believers to one another. First Peter 4, nine says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So we are to have an openness in our lives to other, other believers. Then point 10, as an example this is verse 10, and we'll come back to this next time. We have seen verse 9, "...do not complain, don't utter even the shadow, the whisper of a negative thought towards another believer against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. This brings in the judgment seat of Christ, which is imminent. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door." So next time we'll develop the the, uh, principle of personal sense of eternal destiny, and we will get into the shift from patience to endurance in verses 10 and 11 with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to be challenged with how we evaluate our problems and adversities in life and how we are to apply your word and the doctrinal principles of your word to those problems, that we may avoid converting the outside pressure of adversity Into the inside pressure of stress in our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.